Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to the New Books Network Southeast Asian Studies channel. I'm Duncan McCargo, Professor of Global Affairs at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. And for this episode, I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to talk to Petra Alderman of the University of Birmingham about her new book, Branding Authoritarian Nations, Political Legitimation and Strategic Myths in Military-Ruled Thailand. Petra, welcome to the New Books Network Southeast Asian Studies channel. Thank you, Duncan, for having me today. It's a great pleasure. It really is. So Petra is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Birmingham, and her book is just out from Routledge with a 2024 date on it. In the interest of full disclosure, I must reveal that the book is based on a PhD thesis that I co-supervised at the University of Leeds, where Petra was my student, and also that the book appears in the Routledge Rethinking Southeast Asia series of which I am the editor. So just get that out of the way first. I'm obviously quite familiar with your (laughs) project, Petra. I know a little bit about it. So let's jump right in for those who know less about it. Quite a lot of words in the title there. But obviously, nation branding is a big theme and focus of this book. And I know, because I've been around a few times when you've given presentations on this topic, People always tend to home in on this question. What is nation branding? And also, what's the difference between nation branding, political marketing, public diplomacy, and propaganda, and probably several other related terms that they can come up with? So maybe you could tell us what nation branding is from your perspective and why that's such a, a central element of this book project. Yes, it is a question that I get asked a lot. And I don't think that there is an actual really good answer to that. I think part of it is that there was the original idea of what nation branding is and perhaps should be. And that originated from this whole sort of business and marketing scholarship and also from practice. So it originated back in the sort of late 1990s. There was a major push from the US scholars operating in this area of business studies and marketing studies, but also some branding practitioners who probably saw an opportunity in this area and really tried to push the agenda that countries can brand themselves as if they were products or as if they were corporations. So they could try and build this brand image for themselves and they could build it in very instrumental ways so that they can enhance the competitive advantage of the country in this global marketplace. So there was this whole narrative around it of how we're entering this hyper sort of image focused world where image is probably more important currency than typically military might or politics and all these other things and that countries should really work on building a very good image or brand in order to try and utilize that so there could have been several reasons why these marketing scholars or business scholars and also business and marketing practitioners, both in the US and the UK, were trying to encourage countries to engage in nation branding. They would say, well, look, you know, if your country is somewhere like Kazakhstan or maybe even country like Slovakia, so my own country, where people actually do not know much about the country or they don't even know what to associate your country with, this is the opportunity when you can kind of write your story, when you can tell people what you are really about. 
and what it means to be a Slovak or a Kazakh. Or if, for example, in instances where your country has a negative image, you can try and rewrite that and you could try and build a more positive brand. So this was the original idea behind nation branding. But what I tried to say in the book is that we might think about nation branding in this original way or the original idea, but that isn't necessarily how nations or the countries that have engaged in this practice have thought about it and have maybe used it themselves. So there is a kind of a gap between the original idea of what nation branding is and perhaps should be and how nation branding has been used. And that's particularly true for authoritarian nations. And in the case of my book, I tried to demonstrate this on the example of Thailand. And this is perhaps where you enter the territory of how different is nation branding from propaganda, how different it is maybe from soft power, public diplomacy, and these other contexts. Nation branding, I mean, there is definitely a value in trying to keep this a separate concept. That doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't build or maybe use some of the underpinning processes used in some of these other concepts, especially propaganda. But I think what nation branding shows us is this increasing convergence between business and politics. More countries these days are being run like corporations or businesses. There is a lot of that marrying of the business language. You've got figures who were previously, you know, successful businessmen, then entering politics, becoming these leaders who try and maybe hail this new era of politics where things get done and where they approach governance as if they were CEOs. We saw that in Thailand with the rise of tax in Shinawat, but we have it in other countries as well, like the US and with the rise of Donald Trump. He had that kind of rhetoric as well. You know, let's get things done. I'm going to treat this really as my business and we're going to get things done and we're not going to care too much about democracy, democratic niceties and so on and so forth. We're just going to bulldoze our way through and get things done. Okay, great. Yeah, soft power was the other one that I hadn't mentioned, the more obvious concepts that inhabit a similar sort of space. Because you do get the feeling, perhaps it's because of that business marketing tourism association, that quite a lot of the political scientists are slightly sniffy nation branding. What would you say to that accusation? Yes, that's right on point. So nation branding is not really a popular topic to study among political scientists or even international relations scholars. And I think there is a, a still major gap, especially among critical scholarship on this topic from these two disciplines. The gap has been filled ever so slightly by some scholars, and there's been some really good work done on this topic. But there is definitely a lot more that can be done. I think the problem is that we tend to look at nation branding, as you said, you know, the association, for example, with tourism is quite strong. So we tend to look at these campaigns, tourism campaigns and the logos and just look at it as a vanity project, something that these countries just spend immense amount of money and resources on. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a video, it's a logo, it's a brand, it's an image, and it doesn't go beyond that. But in reality, that's not the case. Nation branding goes a lot deeper than its visual facade. And I think this is where we are missing an opportunity as political scientists and international relations scholars to engage with this practice at a deeper level. I really believe that there is much to be studied and much to be sort of unearthed in this area. Right. I mean, that probably my own first understanding of the notion of nation branding did indeed come from the classic amazing Thailand tourism campaign that started in the late 1990s and still pops up to this day. That slogan is still appearing. Now, you open the book 
with an anecdote of your own fieldwork experiences, which took place, interestingly enough, on a Thai Airways flight from London to Bangkok. Perhaps you could just tell our listeners about that particular moment yeah. and its, its salience to the story that you tell in the rest of the book. Yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorite examples to use to really demonstrate what nation branding is. And I remember sitting on the flight and we might have been halfway through the journey to Bangkok. And there was this short video that popped up and it was about the origins of Pad Thai. Now there's this story about Pad Thai originating during the rule of one of Thailand's military dictators, Field Marshal Player Pibun Songkram. And basically the, the story goes that it was during his rule that the noodles were created in order to encourage the creation of Thai national identity during quite a turbulent period of time. So we're talking about the late 1930s mm -hmm. um, and sort of early 1940s, so the time of the Second World War. So the story goes that this was really to shore up the Thai national identity at that time, but now everybody can kind of partake in this Thai national identity and it is flexible and it is great. And, you know, so you've got this story of Pad Thai and you've got images of Thailand and it's quite lighthearted, quite fun. You've got references to certain national myths and things going through this video and it really tries to encourage you to come to Thailand and engage actively in this notion of Thainess. Now obviously what the video doesn't tell you is that it was June 2016 is that Thailand at the time was a full-fledged military rule and as I was sitting there watching that video I was kind of looking around and most of the passengers who were on that flight at least who were near me and whom I could see, were actually Thais. And that made me think, how did these people view this video? How did these people perceive the video? Is it just a coincidence that we are kind of watching a video about noodles that allegedly created during this reign or regime of Field Marshal Plague Pibun Songkram? Is that just a coincidence that we're watching this during another sort of military rule in Thailand? It kind of felt like it was a soft justification of a military rule saying, well, you know, military rules in Thailand are not too bad. They gave the world these delicious Thai dishes, noodle dishes. So how can they be that bad? So that really made me think about nation branding. And I think that was the beginning when I started perhaps seeing something deeper behind the whole story and the way it is used and being used during the military rule. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So there's this background concept that's, that looms very large in the book, and this idea model that we have about tourism promotion. Really arguing in this book relates very closely to other keywords in the title, such as authoritarian. So we don't necessarily associate nation branding and all these fuzzy tourism promotion activities with authoritarianism. So how does that piece fit into the argument of the book? And what's authoritarianism got to do with nation branding? So nation branding, I mean, as I mentioned, sort of originated back in the late 1990s and since then it became very, very popular in the realm of practice. So there's been a lot of countries from around the world, from different political and socioeconomic levels that have engaged in nation branding and have oftentimes hired expensive branding companies, sort of international or global branding companies and consultancies to build out that kind of brand for themselves. 
And when you start looking at what countries have gone for this, oftentimes you will find that many of them are actually authoritarian countries. This idea of nation branding or the practice of nation branding is not something that would be a field for democracies to engage in, but a lot of authoritarian countries have hired international consultants and global companies, Thailand included, although not during the military rule. But a lot of countries have done that. And I think there is a genuine interest in these countries to try and create a positive image. In my book, I actually argue that this kind of image creation or, you know, creation of these branded images is actually more for the domestic consumption rather than for the outside world. Because oftentimes it can be more difficult to persuade the outside world to buy into these images. But I really think that nation branding in authoritarian contexts is used to create these visions behind which the elites are trying to, well, first justify their rule and the way they rule the country, but also mobilize their citizens and try to almost get them to perform these brand identities so that they kind of work towards these branded visions. Right. And the way you're talking about it now, I guess there's a lot of work out there once we get into the soft power realm, you know, people writing stuff now about how China's influencing the world in certain ways and so forth. We tend to have the idea that a lot of this kind of thing is externally oriented. But the way you're framing it, I guess, in the context of the aftermath of the 2014 coup in Thailand is very much towards the domestic. So could you explain why you would need to brand a nation to people who are in that nation already? The core idea, as I said, was that, you know, you can brand a nation, let's say like a corporation or a product. And when you look at some of the scholarship in branding and also a practice around branding, let's say corporations, the basic logic of that is that, you know, branding a corporation is actually not enough. If you want to build a successful corporate brand it's not enough to have a fancy logo it's not enough to have Mm. like a you know nice materials that you can distribute to people outside but what really matters is the employees and the way that they act when they interact with with your customers and people so you have to make sure that the employees who work within that context actually live the brand and i think this is the appealing aspect of nation branding particularly for these non-democratic regimes and i think this is the approach that a lot of authoritarian regimes adopt when it comes to nation branding, this idea that they try to get their citizens to live the brand, to sort of subscribe to these brand images that these regimes are trying to build. I really think that they try to show them these things. In some ways, when you look at nation branding, because it should operate across all the different industries, so it's not just tourism, but it should operate across things like the economy, foreign direct investment, you know, foreign relations. So you're trying to build like a one large umbrella, big comprehensive brand where you can fit in the requirements within these different sectors. But the idea there is that you try to encourage your citizens to work towards living the brand and you can then use this logic. And in the Thai context, I mean, there's been so much over the years that we could see that you say to people, you really need to act this way because if you don't act, this is not good. People will not want to come to see our country. So you could kind of create this narrative that you're doing it, you're building it really for the outside world, whereas in reality, you're actually trying to legitimize your regime and your own rule and get the citizens to behave in particular ways that help ensure up your rule in critical or crucial ways. Right. So in the aftermath of the 22nd of May 2014, Thailand obviously 
had some international image problems, but there was also a, a domestic legitimation problem for the military junta led by General Prayut Chanocha. What exactly did they do to deploy these tools of nation branding on the domestic populace? So there were lots of different ways. This is where what you can see is the soft side. So obviously the regime in Thailand that got to power through the coup in 2014 was highly repressive. And when we talk about nation running, that doesn't mean that we stop talking about the repressive powers, but this operates kind of in addition to some of these more repressive powers. So you could see it as a softer strategy. In the book, I used quite a lot of different examples that have been used, some with higher or lower levels of success. But there's been a lot of sort of branded policies that the government has been shouting about for quite some time famous Thailand 4.0 policy, which really seemed more like a brand rather than an actual real policy that would have much of a substance. There were a lot of videos around that. There were also a lot of discussions of the policy and what the policy is or isn't about in the media. The government was producing lots of infographics. People were sharing these infographics on social media. At one point, there was even a Thailand 4.0 rap song, which the government yes. produced. This rap song, which ended up being a reaction to another rap song, which was created by this group of Thai rappers who used rap music as a criticism of the military rule. You had movies that were produced during the time with very strong brand identities or sort of narratives that were really in line with the overall brand identity that the military junta was trying to create for Thailand. So it was very sort of conservative, very nationalistic. And this is not to say that those things actually succeeded in the end, but this is how the military junta was trying to communicate. For example, in the tourism sector, there were lots of internally faced tourism videos that tried to promote domestic tourism in Thailand as well. And they really engaged in creating narratives, images that were pretty much in line with the overall brand image that the junta was trying to promote. I presume you'd also include within this some of those activities that were most closely associated with General Priyut, who was very much the face of the coup and the face of the regime, especially in its early years whether we're talking about his weekly broadcasts, whether you're talking about the songs that he wrote or purportedly wrote, and indeed the six song prakar, the, the 12 oh, sort values, of principles yeah. and values that were posted outside every single school in Thailand at one point. So could you talk a bit about those general Priyut-centered programs and, and how far you see those as part of a nation branding exercise? I think they're very much the sort of the part of what I call the internal, the domestic nation branding. And there were also, you know, lots of activities done by different ministries. So for example, after General Priyut penned these 12 values of Thainess, then all the ministries had to produce some kind of either campaigns or materials in support of these campaigns. So they had to become part of the kind of every day. So it wasn't just the idea that school kids had to recite them every day. But if you start looking at some of the activities or even campaign materials around that time, you can see that different ministries were also trying to engage with some of these values. There was also, I think, a short movie competition at one point that was very much based around these values where students were encouraged to create their own videos where they would be telling stories about these values or these values would feature in the stories. And there was also a series of actually quite disturbing videos produced by the Ministry of Culture around the 12 values as well. 
it was almost like a coordinated effort to push this forward. And obviously, it was heavily promoted as something that was created by Prayut, who, as you rightly said, was very much the face of the coup. He might not have been always the main person calling the shots behind the scenes in terms of the political power, but he was definitely the face of the coup. And over the years, especially towards the end of the military rule, we could see how there were attempts to rebrand Prayut from where, you know, he started off as this military general who staged a coup to save Thailand and who was this kind of paternalistic ruler, almost kind of modelling himself based on Field Marshal Sarit Tanarat, who was another military dictator in Thailand back in the 60s. But then towards the end of the full-blown military rule, there was this attempt to rebrand Prayut away from that military image and to maybe make him look more like a career politician. Because obviously with the first 2019, so the first post-coup election in March 2019, there was a new political party that was created basically as a vehicle for the military junta to continue in power, and that was Palang Pracharat Party. The name of the party also came from some of the branding efforts that were put in place during the military junta. So the actual Pracharat name was part of the brand, then was transformed into almost this political marketing strategy ahead of the polls. And Prayut was presented as no longer a soldier, but more of a politician or political figure. He was very much central to all the branding efforts. And it was to legitimise, obviously, the coup and the ensuing military rule to try and present him as this good old uncle who just intervened to save Thailand from itself. Right. And you've obviously started the story with your Gambin Thai flight to Bangkok and the Pad Thai video. But how once you got to Thailand and you were very much in the midst of that particular era, you were right halfway through the coup period, as it were, that lasted from 2014 to 2019. How did you go about doing your research and trying to get to the bottom of how Thais in particular were understanding and reacting to this nation branding project that was being enacted around them as part of the process of legitimating the regime? Oftentimes, you have a lot of these campaigns and you might feel like, do they actually make any difference? Do people take any notice? So what I decided to do was to run a series of focus groups, and I did these at different universities across Thailand. So they were mostly organized with Thai students, university students, but I also run one focus group with university lecturers and one with villagers in Thailand's northeast, which is the area of Thailand where people typically support Thaksin Shinawatra, so the former prime minister and who is kind of considered a black sheep of the Thai political establishment and who was the target of both the 2014 and 2006 military coups. And what I did was I selected four different videos which I thought kind of represented branding activities that were aimed at Thai citizens in different sectors. So one of them was the Thailand 4.0 video. Then there was one which was more along the sort of identity cultural lines. Then there was a trailer for a movie that was released in 2016, which I mentioned before that I said that there was a film that was released and which was quite a nationalistic one. And then I also played a tourism advert. And I really wanted to know what extent actually people could see through these videos. So I had a series of questions and after each video played, I would ask these participants, 
what did they think of the video? How did it make them feel? Who did they think was the primary target audience for these videos? And I should probably say that some of these videos were in Thai, so they were explicitly aimed at Thai audience, but other videos did not have any spoken words. So they could have been used for both internal and external audiences. I did not play any English language videos just because I did not want to put some students into a disadvantage if they were not proficient in English language. So I played these videos and I would then let these students really discuss these points. And it was quite interesting with some of the outcomes and the way some participants actually related to these videos. I could see from the discussions that there was this almost emerging generational cleavage which then kind of exploded a few years after, obviously, I left Thailand after doing that fieldwork, which played out then at the level of national politics. So I could already, in 2016, from those focus groups, there was already some kind of evidence that there was this growing generational divide in between how younger generations were looking at these activities of the military junta, how they were looking at these constructions of Thai image or Thai national identity and how the older generations were doing it. So it was quite interesting, these changes. And obviously, as I was doing these focus groups in different parts of the country, I could also see the sort of the more typical geographical cleavage that Thai experts and scholars have observed for years prior to obviously my my fieldwork. So the difference between areas that are typically seen as supportive of Thaksin Shinawat, which people in these areas were lot more against these ideas and could have more kind of critical relationship or were more critical about these efforts of the military government. And then people from the areas where maybe historically they were sort of more on the anti-taxing side were a lot less critical, a lot more accepting of the messages that were presented through these videos. Great. So there's obviously a lot more in the book. You have a number of chapters really going into a lot of detail based on these focus groups and the interviews that you did and materials that you gathered during the field of work. It's all woven together in an argument that there's a lot of time-related context there, but you're also framing this as an argument about how authoritarian nations more broadly can use the ideas associated with nation branding, try to legitimate their rule. Where do you go from here with this project? Are you doing further work about nation branding now, or do you plan to do further work in this field in the future? Apart from the book last year, I also published an article together with my lovely co-author, Kristin Egerling, who has done work on nation branding in the context of Kazakhstan and Qatar. So to other sort of authoritarian countries. And we actually focused on the topic of national vision documents. So we've noticed that these authoritarian regimes, as part of their branding activities, have been coming up with these spectacular vision documents, you know, to try to chart the future of their country for the next 50 odd years or 20 odd years, obviously, depending on the country and the context. So we were looking how these vision documents are also used as part of this regime legitimation processes. And whilst we were working on that, I think that the article sort of led us to an interesting way of looking at these activities and these things and to look at or to ponder an idea of how maybe these authoritarian regimes are trying to chart the future of their nation and how they're trying to do this in a very instrumental way. So they 
foreclose maybe future possibilities of some kind of alternative political arrangement. So they're literally trying to write their regimes into the long-term future of their nations. And this is the area that I'm still very much interested in. I would like to do more work in to look at this perception of time and how these authoritarian regimes work with perceptions of time and future, especially using some of these image-making practices or branding strategies. That's great. So we have more to look forward to coming out of this project as things unfold. And even though Thailand has on some level moved on and General Priyut is no longer prime minister, I'm sure you'll want to assure us that the idea of nation branding is not really going to go away. No, not at all. I mean, you might have noticed since before the latest election in Thailand, so the 2023 election that was held in Thailand in May last year, the Pertite Party, which is the party associated with taxing, was running on this idea of one province, one soft power. So it was, again, a kind of rebranded version of their one Tambon, one product program that was very popular during the taxing era governments and that the military junta also tried to rebrand in some way during the military rule from 2014 to 2019. And there's been a lot of talk about soft power in Thailand also post-election. Both you and I and probably a lot of listeners to this channel know that although Putai did not win the May 2023 election, they are now in power with this kind of cobbled up coalition of pro-junta parties and highly pragmatic parties and so on. But the talk about soft power is still there. And I think this is not going to go away anytime soon. And it would be interesting to look and analyze how the present government understands and uses this notion and deploys this notion of soft power, because it is quite different to what concept, as we would look at it from an academic point of view, is being presented. Right. Yeah. And of course, we see lots of interesting things here where in many ways, what you could argue the Priyut post-2014 coup regime, the NCPO, did was rebranding, recasting ideas that have been previously used by pro-taxing governments in earlier decades. And now we see a Purtai government going back to some of those ideas with new twists. So the, the story of Thai nation branding just runs and runs. Exactly. Yes. Thank you so much, Petra, for joining us here on the New Books Network Southeast Asian Studies channel. Thank you very much for having me, Duncan. So I have been talking to Petra Alderman of the University of Birmingham about her very interesting new book, Branding Authoritarian Nations, Political Legitimation and Strategic National Myths in Military-Ruled Thailand, which is out from Routledge 2024. I'm Duncan McCargo, Professor of Global Affairs at Nanyang Technological University. Thank you for listening to the New Books Network Southeast Asian Studies channel. Music